The following Bible lesson and other Bible information can be found on the official Dean Bible Ministries website. That's found at www.deanbible.org. That's www.deanbible.org. Dr. Dean is the pastor of West Houston Bible Church. And now, here's Dr. Dean with the Bible lesson. Well, since this weekend is Memorial Day weekend, I thought it would be appropriate to reflect upon the purpose of Memorial Day. And I could not think of anything more appropriate than a speech that was delivered by General Douglas MacArthur on the occasion of his 75th birthday when they dedicated a park, what became MacArthur Park, in Los Angeles. This is what MacArthur said on that occasion. I've listened with deep emotion to these solemn proceedings and my heart is too full for my lips to express adequately my thanks and appreciation for the extraordinary honor you do me. Even so, I understand full well that this memorial is intended to commemorate an epic rather than an individual, an armed force rather than its commander, a nation rather than its servant, an ideal rather than a personality. This but increases my pride that my name has been the one chosen as a symbol of an epic struggle and victory by millions of unnamed others. It is their heroism, their sacrifice, their success that you have honored today in so an unforgettable manner. I and this statue and this park are but the selected reminders of their grandeur. Most of them were citizen soldiers, sailors, and airmen, men from the farm, men from the city, from the schoolroom, from, from the college campus, men not dedicated to the profession of arms, men not primarily skilled in the art of destruction, men amazingly like those you see and meet and know each day of your lives, but men animated, inspired, ennobled by the sublime cause, the defense of their country, their native land, their very hearthstones. The most divine of all human sentiments and the impulses guided them. The spirit and willingness to sacrifice. He who dares to die, to lay down his life on the altar of his nation's need, is beyond doubt the noblest development of mankind. In this he comes closest to the image of his creator, the Lord Jesus Christ, who died on the cross that the human soul might live. These men were my comrades in arms. With me they knew the far call of the bugles at Reveille, the distant roll of drums at nightfall, the endless tramp of marching feet, the incessant whine of the sniper's bullet, the ceaseless rattle of sputtering machine guns and that ominous roar of threatening cannon, the sinister wail of air raid sirens, the deafening blasts of crashing bombs, the stealthy stroke of hidden torpedoes, the amphibious lurch over perilous waves, the dark majesty of the fighting ships, the mad din of battle lines and the stench and all the ghastly horror and savage destruction of a stricken area of war. They suffered hunger and thirst, the broiling suns of relentless heat, the torrential rains of tropical storms, the loneliness and utter desolation of jungle trails, the bitterness of separation from those they loved and cherished. And they went on and on and on when everything within them seemed to stop and die. They grew old in youth. They burned out in searing minutes of all that life owed them, everything of their tranquil years. When I think of their patience under adversity and their courage under fire, their modesty in victory, I am filled with an emotion of admiration I cannot express. Many of them trod the tragic path of unknown fame that led to a stark white cross above a lonely grave. And from their tortured dying lips, with the dreadful gurgle of the death rattle in their throats, always came that same grasping prayer that we who are left would go on to victory. I did not know the dignity of their birth, but I do know the glory of their death. And in these troublesome times of confusion and bewilderment, and international sophistication, let no man misunderstand what they did and that for which they died. These were patriots, plain and simple. They were men who fought and perchance died for one reason alone, for their country, 
for the United States of America. No complex philosophies of world intrigue and conspiracy dominated their thoughts. No elaboration or extravagance of propaganda dimmed their sensibilities. Just a simple fact, their country had called them. Just the devoted doctrine of Stephen Decatur when he said, My country, may she always be right, but right or wrong, my country. Be not deceived by strange voices heard across the land decrying this old and proven principle of patriotism. Although it has been from the beginning the main bulwark of our national strength and integrity, seductive mummers are arising. That it is now outmoded by some more comprehensive and all-embracing philosophy. That we are provincial and immature or reactionary and stupid when we idealize our own nation. And that there is a higher destiny for us under another and more general flag that no longer when we send our sons and daughters to the battlefield should we see them through all the way to victory. That we can call upon them to fight and even to die for some half-hearted and indecisive effort. That we can plunge them recklessly into war and then suddenly decide it is the wrong war or the wrong place or the wrong time or ever that we can call it not a war at all but by some more euphonious or gentler name. That we can treat our loved ones as expendable, although they are, at, they are our own flesh and blood. And even in times of peace, for some romantic reason, they must share not as a gesture of generosity, but as a bounded duty, their national blessings and goods, built from nothing to a height never before reached by man with others. Whether through neglect or not, they have not fared as well. That we, the most powerful nation in the world, have suddenly become dependent on others for our security and even our welfare. Listen not to these voices, be they from one political party or the other, be they from the high and the mighty, or the lowly and the forgotten. Heed them not. Visit upon them the righteous scorn born of the past sacrifices of your fighting sons and daughters. Repudiate them by word and deed in the marketplace, on the platform, from the pulpit. Those who are our friends will understand. Those who are not, we can pass them by. Be proud to be called a patriot or a nationalist or what you will if it means you love your country above all else and you will place your life, if need be, at the service of your flag. MacArthur made those remarks in 1951 and we can see that he really prophesied the attitude that came to dominate this country in the last 50 years. Memorial Day was a holiday that was originally created and set aside by Abraham Lincoln during the War between the states. For many people, it's nothing more than a day at the beach, a day off of work, a day to catch up on some sleep, the beginning of summer. But as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, we need to recognize that Memorial Day is designed to remember those who have given the ultimate sacrifice for the freedoms that we enjoy. Freedoms to gather together, to assemble together on a regular basis to study God's Word and not to be encumbered by any uh, laws or by a government that imposes itself on our thinking or on our freedom of speech. So they have given the ultimate sacrifice for us, and there are many others who have also sacrificed to serve in the uniform of our nation, and we should always remember them and never become so complacent in our liberty and freedom that we forget how precious it really is. Before we begin our study of God's Word, we need to make sure that we are in fellowship, ready to study His Word, ready to focus on the most important thing in our lives, which is Bible doctrine. Ultimately, it is doctrine operating in the soul of the believers of this nation that guarantee the continuation, the preservation of the freedoms that we still enjoy. And so it is up to us as believers, because we are the core, we are the spiritual core, we are the source of blessing by association for this nation as we ever have been from its founding. And that means that the impact that you have as an individual believer, as obscure as we might be, it is the impact that we have from our spiritual life that has the greatest impact on the preservation of this nation, its freedoms, and its future. So before we begin, let's make sure we're in fellowship, filled with the Spirit, a few moments of silent prayer, and then I'll begin an opening prayer. Let's pray.
Our Father, we do indeed thank you for the tremendous privilege we have to worship you in true freedom, to study your word, and to proclaim the truth and the doctrines that are there. Father, we are reminded that throughout history, this is a rare thing for there to be such freedom. We look through the early ages of the church when the Christians were under persecution from the Roman Empire. Throughout the Middle Ages when there was oppression from various religious systems and from state governments and that were hostile to the truth. Through the Reformation and the resurrection of the doctrines of grace and on to the founding of this nation and the privilege that this nation, the privileged place this nation has held in your plan to be a place where many can come to know the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ and that it would be a base for missionaries going out throughout the entire world. That it is through the impact of the Christians in this nation because of the freedom that has been won through military victory and the sacrifice of so many that these believers have had the freedom to study, to grow to spiritual maturity and that by virtue of their advance and association with them that so many throughout the world and throughout the last 200 years have been blessed. And Father, we pray that you would continue to use us in that way and that we as individuals would be mindful that our lives have tremendous impact for good or for ill on those around us. And that the most important thing that we can devote ourselves to is not our career, not our family, not our own personal pleasures, but on your word in growing and advancing in spiritual maturity. So, Father, now as we study your word, we pray that we'd be challenged by the things that we study and we could gain a greater understanding and appreciation for the spiritual life that we have. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Last week, we began our study of the next paragraph in 1 John 2, beginning in chapter, or beginning in verse 7. And the subject in verses 7 through 11 is the subject of impersonal love. That kind of love that is to characterize the believer. But it doesn't come automatically. It doesn't happen to the immature believer but it's the result of Bible study. It's the result of concentration on the Word. It's the result of extended time in fellowship with the Lord, abiding in Christ. It's the result of the filling ministry of God the Holy Spirit as He produces fruit in our lives, as He brings us to spiritual maturity. Beginning in verse 7, let's review before we get into the doctrine itself because there's so much misunderstanding today on the whole concept of love. Very few people in this nation understand what love is, and very few churches understand the kind of love that the Scripture is talking about when it talks about the new commandment that we are to love one another. And so I find it's necessary for us to spend two or three weeks thinking deeply about this particular subject. First John 2.7, John writes, Beloved, I'm not writing a new commandment to you, but an old commandment which you have had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word which you have heard. Now, when John addresses this, he addresses these as as beloved. These are fellow believers. He's not addressing them as unbelievers, but as believers. He says, Beloved, I'm writing a new commandment to you, or I am not writing a new commandment to you. By that... I said last time, it's, this isn't something new. He's taught them before. Remember, John was their pastor at one point before he was exiled to the Isle of Patmos. Now, we're not exactly sure when he wrote this epistle, but he is addressing those with whom he has had an extended ministry. He has taught them. Many of these were uh, in his congregation. He had been their pastor. So they had heard this commandment again and again and again. The Present tense here emphasizes the fact that they have heard this over, or excuse me, the imperfect tense here represents the fact that they have heard this again and again. It's a continuous action in past time. It says, I am not writing a new commandment to you, but an old commandment which you have had. There's the imperfect tense, which you have had continuously from the beginning. That is, the beginning of his ministry to them, the beginning of their Christian life, they have understood the impact of this commandment. He said, this is not a new commandment, but an old commandment, which is the message which you have heard. He summarizes everything into this new commandment. This is not unlike 
our Lord, as we're going to see and look, as we look at Matthew and the passage in Luke chapter 10, that when our Lord was asked to summarize the entire, uh, ten, uh, our entire Mosaic Law, which consisted of 615 commandments, that when our Lord summarized it, He summarized it in two commandments. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And two, love your neighbor as yourself. So the Lord took those 615 commandments and boiled them down to two, the two greatest commandments under which everything else could be organized. John does the same thing. He's going to take all the mandates, all the principles of the spiritual life, and he's going to boil them down and summarize them in one commandment. They all boil down to the commandment of love one another, even as I have loved you. Verse 8, he goes on to say, or excuse, yes, verse 8, he goes on to say, Again, a new commandment I write to you, which thing is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away, and the true light is already shining. Now, when he says a new commandment I write to you, he's referring back to what Jesus said in John 13, 34, and 35. A new commandment, Jesus said, I give to you that you love one another even as I have loved you. Now, John writes quite a bit about this new commandment as he is explaining more of what Jesus taught in the upper room. For example... In 2 John 1.5, he writes, And now I ask you, lady, not as writing to you a new commandment, but the one which we have had from the beginning, that we love one another. This is the commandment he is talking about. 1 John 3.23, he says, And this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as he commanded us. And then in 1 John 4.21, And this commandment we have from him, that the one who loves God should love his brother also. Brother is a reference to another believer, not a physical brother and not some generic sense of some other human being, but is specifically talking about another member of the royal family of God. At the instant of salvation, we are all adopted instantly into the royal family of God. At that moment, we become a child of God. Only those who are believers in the Lord Jesus Christ are children of God. When Jesus was addressing the Pharisees, the religious leaders of his day, they had rejected his claim as Messiah, rejected him as Savior, and when they rejected him, he said, you are of your father, the devil. Today, people think that everybody is a child of God. That's not what the Scripture teaches. Scripture teaches in 1 John, I mean in John 1.12, as many as received him, to them gave he the power to be called the sons of God. Only to those who receive him as Savior. So the believer who is in the royal family of God is to love his fellow members of the royal family as Jesus has loved him. Now that's not always possible, we think. It's not easy. We might look across the congregation or we might think of some other believer we know who's obnoxious, who's mean-spirited, who's angry, whose personality just doesn't uh, line up with ours, whose political or social beliefs don't align with ours, and yet Scripture says we are to love them as Christ loved the church. This is not the simple, superficial kind of love that you find in most congregations where some uh, pastor or music leader will have people stand up and turn around and hug the person next to you and tell them that you love them. That's one of the most idiotic things, I think, that you see in churches because it's, it just uh, promotes a practice that has no meaning and no value because most people don't understand what love is, and they're just going through the motions and making idiotic statements and superficial statements, which denigrates the whole concept of what this is talking about. This is something profound, not something superficial. Jesus stated it in John 13:34, New Commandment, I give to you that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. Furthermore, we can go on and quote many, many passages. John 15, 12. This is my commandment. You love one another just as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that one lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. Ephesians 5, 1 and 2. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love just as Christ also loved you. Notice the model for the believer's Love is Jesus Christ and what He did on the cross. 
that's the starting point for understanding what love is. Any kind of love, if you're going to say anything significant about love, if you don't start with God, then you're going to miss out. Because if you start with human experience and a limited frame of reference, then you're always going to end up, as we'll see, dictionaries always do, with, with emphasizing love as an emotion. And emotions come and go, emotions vacillate, and the consequence is that love then becomes something that is unstable. And yet the kind of love that God has is a kind of love that is perfectly stable because it is related to His immutability, the fact that He never changes. Scripture says Jesus Christ the same yesterday, today, and forever. So 1 John 2.8 says, On the other hand, I'm writing a new commandment to you. I'm referencing the new commandment Jesus gave us in the upper room, which is true in Him. It is grounded in Him. That's the starting point. Because it is true in Him, it's true in you as believers. You plural here, second person plural, Believers who have advanced to spiritual maturity so that they can exhibit this kind of love. Because the darkness is passing away. Darkness references the uh, impact of the world system, the cosmic system, the human viewpoint thinking that dominates this age. It's passing away and the true light is already shining. Now, who is the true light? The true light is Jesus Christ. And this true light is already shining references the first coming of Jesus Christ, the first advent. It was there that the second person of the Trinity became flesh and dwelt among us, as John says in his opening chapter. It is there that the eternal second person of the Trinity, he who knew no sin, became a human being, took on human flesh, yet without a sin nature. He was the perfect God-man, undiminished deity in true humanity, united in one person forever. He was referred to as life. In John 1, 4, we read, In Him was life. Jesus Christ is life. Life is not something separate from Him. He is life. It is only in relationship to Him and thinking like Him that we understand what life really is and develop capacity for life. In Him was life, and that life was the light of men. It is the life of God, the eternal life of God, that is illuminates man as to what truth is. John 1, 5, And the light shines in the darkness. John is writing there this similar phrase to what we have in First uh, John 2, 8. The light shines in the darkness. The light is the Lord Jesus Christ and it is continuously reaching out into the darkness. This is the outreach of God promoted by His impersonal love to all mankind to save man and it starts at the cross. The light shines in darkness and the darkness did not comprehend it. This refers to the first coming of Jesus Christ that He appeared on earth but most people didn't understand who He was or what His claims were and they rejected Him. Then in John 1.9 there was the true light which coming into the world enlightens every man. And then John develops the concept further in the third chapter. He says in John 3.19 and this is the judgment that the light has come into the world, that is the Lord Jesus Christ, and men loved the darkness rather than the light. They rejected Him, for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. But he who practices the truth comes to the light, that his deeds may be manifested as having been wrought in God. And then Jesus said in John 8, 12, Again, therefore, Jesus spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. Now, I want to remind you, just briefly look back at 1 John chapter 1, verse 5 and 6. There, John says, this is the message which we have heard. Now, he's going to refer to that message again and referred to this message again in verse excuse me in chapter 2 verse 7 that the old commandment is the message which you heard from the beginning this is the message 1:5 we have heard from him declare to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all if we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness we lie and do not practice the truth you can be a believer and still walk in darkness now Jesus said if we follow him we won't walk in darkness but we will have the light of light So the key to avoiding walking in darkness under the influence of the world system is to walk in 
fellowship with the Lord Jesus Christ, abiding in Him, which means learning and applying doctrine consistently. Then we read in 1 John chapter 2, verse 9, He who says he is in the light, this is the first person who makes a claim that he is in the light, that is, in fellowship with God, walking consistent with the holiness, the righteousness of God, consistent with His revelation of who He is. The person who says he is in the light and hates his brother is in darkness until now. Now, this is not talking about the fact that this person is not saved. I want you to notice, in verse 9, we read, The one who says he is in the light and hates his brother is in the darkness until now. The only verb that we have there is the verb is. The Greek is ami. But there is something left out. And this is typical of John and the Lord Jesus Christ did the same thing in John 15. If we look at verse 10, 1 John 2.10, we read, The one who loves his brother abides in the light. Now notice the verb in verse 10 is abide. If we look back at verse 9, it doesn't mention abide. It just uses the word is. But this is what John is talking about. We can go back and look at 1 John 2.6, 2.5, 2.6, where he introduces the concept of abiding. So by saying the one who says he is in the light, what John is talking about is abiding in the light. He doesn't state it there. It's, It's what's called ellipsis when you leave a word out. The one who says he is in the light and yet hates his brother is in the darkness until now. If you claim to be in fellowship, if you claim to be walking in the light, and yet your life demonstrates antagonism, hatred, hostility, anger towards another believer, then you are out of fellowship, you're in carnality, you're operating on your sin nature, and you do not have an operative relationship with the Lord in your life. In contrast, verse 10, the one who loves his brother, who applies doctrine and is advancing to spiritual maturity, abides in the light. That means to remain, to stay, to continue in fellowship. Abides in the light and there is no cause for stumbling in him. As long as you're abiding in the light and there's no sin. This We have to go back to understand what Paul says in Galatians 5.16. That is so crucial. There in Galatians 5.16, Paul said, Walk by means of the Spirit, and you will not bring to completion the deeds of the flesh. Now, it sounds simple in the English, but it leaves a lot out. In the Greek, you have a double negative plus a subjunctive verb, and that's the strongest possible way in the Greek you can make a negation. When Paul says, Walk in the Spirit, and you will not fulfill, what he is saying is, when you're walking by means of God the Holy Spirit which means you're in fellowship, you're walking in the light, you're abiding in Christ. All those terms are synonymous. That when you're doing that, it's impossible to sin. That means you have to do something before you sin. You have to stop walking. Somewhere along the line, we make a decision to stop walking in dependence upon God the Holy Spirit by applying His Word, and we choose to live our life the way we want to, and then we're out of fellowship, we're under the control of the sin nature, and then we sin. That's what John is saying. Same thing here in John's terminology. And that is that when you're abiding in the light, there's no cause for stumbling. When you're abiding in the light, you won't sin. You have to make a decision to quit abiding, quit walking by the Holy Spirit in order for the sin nature to resume control. And then in verse 11, he contrasts back. Notice he teaches by contrast. First one side, then the other side. Back and forth. The one who who claims to walk but hates. The one who walks but loves. And now the one who hates. Verse 11, But the one who hates his brother is in the darkness. That is, he abides in the darkness and walks in the darkness. See, the concept of walking and abiding are synonymous. It emphasizes that continuing, ongoing fellowship with the Lord Jesus Christ and with the Holy Spirit as we advance to spiritual maturity. The one who hates his brother is in the darkness. That means you're in carnality, out of fellowship, and liable for divine discipline. And walking in the darkness. 
and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. Without the illumination of doctrine and application of doctrine in the soul, then any person, believer or unbeliever, but in this case a believer who is in carnality, cannot look at his life objectively, cannot make good decisions, cannot understand what the real issues in life are because he's operating in darkness. He's operating on false thinking, false systems of thinking, and he has excluded God's revelation from his thinking. So he is viewed as blind and in darkness, and he has no capacity for life, no capacity for happiness, and he is on the path of self-destruction. But what we find here in these verses is the introduction of a category of doctrine that will become a major theme in the epistle of John. It is not only a major theme in the epistle of John, but it is a summary of the entire Christian way of life. But sadly, it is one of the most confused and distorted doctrines in churches today. And that is the concept of love. What did Jesus mean when he said, Love one another as I have loved you? In this epistle, we're going to discover that that we're going to come back to this again and again. So, we're going to introduce it this morning. The next couple of Sundays go through it. But each time we hit it, we're going to come back, review it, and add more dimensions to our understanding. The verb here is agapao. Agapao. There are four different words for love in Greek. Two are found in the New Testament. Agapao and phileo. Agapao usually emphasizes the unconditional love, and phileo indicates a more intense, intimate love. It too may be unconditional, but the emphasis on phileo is on intimacy and intensity. Agapao and agape, the noun, are found in 1 John. Phileo and philos are not. Agapao is used 28 times in 1 John. The noun agape is used 18 times in 1 John for a total of 46 uses and references to love in the epistle of John. Now that ought to say something about what the emphasis, what one of the major themes is in this epistle. John is going to be explaining a lot about what Jesus said referring to love in John chapter 14 and 15. So let's begin with trying to understand a definition of love. Trying to understand just some basic definition of love. And we're going to have about, under the, this is the first point, and there are six subpoints to this first point, just to give you a little organization. Six subpoints to this first point, which is trying to understand the meaning of love. Love has different dimensions to it. Yet, they're all interrelated. Unfortunately, dictionary definitions always begin with human experience and with human emotion. And for the believer, we must recognize that it's God's character, it's His revelation, it's what He says in His Word about love that is the starting point for understanding the concept. So, we will start there. Now, in terms of Basic working definition. Something we'll start off with. We'll modify this as we go through the study. But just for a working definition, so we have some idea of what love is. Love is a mental attitude, not an emotion, not a feeling, not some warm, fuzzy glow. Love is a mental attitude which desires the absolute best for its object. It is a mental attitude which desires the absolute best for its object. Now, there are several things to note about that as a working definition. First of all, as a mental attitude, I'm emphasizing stability, not emotion, which is instability. It is, as a mental attitude, it's a decision. It's not something that happens to you. You don't just fall in love. It's not something that is based on circumstances. It's based on a decision, and it's based on a mindset. It desires the best for its object. Now, best is a value term. That means that you have to have objectivity. You have to have something in your soul that enables you to understand what is best and what is worst. Now, some people would say, well, that's awfully arrogant to think that somebody can determine what's best for somebody else. 
But if you're operating on an external absolute that is provided by the Word of God, then we know what the best is. We know what the good is. And only on the basis of God's revelation of what best is can we make honest, objective decisions towards uh, anyone in our lives, whether it's a husband, wife, children, family, friends, people we work with. Uh, We have to understand that value system that God reveals to us in His Word. So a mental attitude which desires the best for its object, and that object can be any other human being, whether it's a close relationship or whether it's a relationship with someone with whom we have no knowledge, no personal involvement at all. We still know what's best because we have the illumination of God's Word. So that's our starting point. Working definition, a mental attitude which desires the best for its object. Love functions in different ways and in different capacities. There's all kinds of love. There's romantic love. There's sexual love. There's parental love. There's the love of children for parents. There's sibling love for brothers and sisters. There's love between friends. There's love for God. There is all kinds of love. So when Jesus says that we need to love one another, what kind of love is he talking about? Second point in our definition is that love is notoriously difficult to define. If you go home this afternoon, try to work on a definition of love. It's very difficult because most of us start with some kind of feeling. We start with some sort of emotion. We start with some sort of experience. Love is difficult to find. Even Scripture never gives us a definition of love never provides us with a definition of love, but instead describes its characteristics, illustrates it through parables, and models it through the example of Christ. Therefore, we can know what love is and what it isn't, even though it might be difficult to encapsulate it in one simple one-sentence or two-sentence definition. Third, Let's see how the dictionary defines it. Webster's Third International Dictionary has three, has really many more categories, but these are the three that most interest us and most directly impact our study. First of all, it emphasizes the attraction, desire, or affection felt for a person who arouses delight or admiration or elicits tenderness, sympathetic interest, or benevolence. That's the first meaning. Attraction desire, affection, felt for a person who arouses delight or admiration or elicits tenderness, sympathetic interest, or benevolence. The idea of devoted affection. Secondly, it means warm attachment, enthusiasm. Enthusiasm means emotion. Or devotion. Look at the definition of a devotion. Devotion also includes the idea of emotion. Third, the benevolence attributed to God resembling a father's affection for his children. Notice, when it comes to God's love... Even Webster's falls short. They have difficulty finding the words. Benevolence attributed to God. Resembling. Notice, they almost border on making it an anthropopathism. Remember, anthropopathism means attributing an emotion to God that he doesn't actually possess, attributing a human emotion to God that he does not actually possess in order to communicate something about God's plans, purposes, and policy to mankind on a common frame of reference. Notice, it resembles a father's love. He doesn't say it is a father's love. So even when it comes to defining God's love, they have trouble articulating what that is because the love of God is so profound that it is beyond anything within our experience. That's why the only thing we can do is understand it in terms of its characteristics, in terms of its attributes, and in terms of what it includes and what it excludes. But these definitions of love reveal the basic problem in trying to define love. Now, people walk around all the time talking about love. Now, if you're going to use a word, you ought to be able to tell people what it means. So, if you're going to talk to your children and say, I love you, what do you mean? If you're going to look across at your husband or wife and say, honey, I love you, what do you mean by love? What does that entail? It means a lot of different things to a lot of different people. When I grew up, because I grew up in a, in a church where doctrine was taught, 
and because I had certain things rammed into my thinking from early childhood about love, I always thought that, that you, making the statement, I love you, was something that should be reserved for something very special, something unique, something that would be a lifelong, involve a lifelong commitment. And yet when I went to college, I discovered that there were, there were guys that would tell any girl that came along that they loved them. And they said that over and over again, and it just diluted the whole concept. And I wondered, what in the world are these people talking about? They don't have a clue what love is, and yet that seems to be the common experience. So uh, those of you out there who are single, beware when you hear those words, I love you, you better ask, at least in your own mind, what do they mean? Do they even know what they mean? Well, as we look at our Webster's three, three definitions from Webster's, let's take a passage like John 3.16 where we read, God loved the world so much that He gave. Now look at that first definition. Does that fit with God's love for the world in John 3.16? The attraction, desire, or affection felt for a person? God is attracted to mankind, attracted to fallen man. God has a delight or admiration for sinful, rebellious man. Is that, is that what that's saying? God has an affinity for man who is completely antagonistic to him? I don't think so. Does, did Adam, after the fall in his rebellion, arouse delight and admiration from God? I don't think so. So you see, when we have a simple statement like, God so loved the world, and then we go to one of the best dictionaries in the world and we see how it defines that term, that we are left uh, in confusion because the common definitions for the word love don't fit with the way Scripture uses the word. This is the problem of defining love. So what's the solution? Well, there are two categories or expressions of divine love that manifests themselves. There are two categories that manifest themselves. When we think of love, the Scripture talks about the love of God, and yet it expresses itself in different ways. The primary thing that we think of in the love of God is God's personal love. God's personal love. Personal love is the expression or, de- uh, of a dedic- or, the expression or dedication, devotion to an object with whom God has rapport, with whom God has something in common, with whom God has something of affinity. God can have personal love for another person that is compatible with Him. Now, that exists only in the Trinity. God is eternally love because God is eternal. God the Father is eternal. God the Son is eternal. And God the Holy Spirit is eternal. God the Father has always loved and been loved. This is one of the things that sets Christianity apart from every other religion in human history. Christianity is monotheistic, but Christianity is a Trinitarian monotheism. You look at Islam. Islam is a Unitarian monotheism. Just one God. In Christianity, God exists as three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. They are one in essence and three in person. And we've studied that in detail. That's the Trinity. They are completely compatible with one another. There is no distinction. None is better. None is superior to the others. They have ranking. They have different roles. But they are equal as persons. Now, in Islam, you just have one, a solitary, singular, Unitarian monotheism. You have a God. That God is allegedly love. But but love demands an object. Whenever you use the word love as a verb, it is A transitive verb. A transitive verb necessitates an object. I know that's a little rough for some of you this morning to go to basic grammar like that. But that demands an object. You can't be love if there is no object of love. That's the point. And only in a Trinitarian God is there an eternal object for God's love. With Allah or any other form of Unitarian monotheism, as in Judaism, as in some other religious systems, They claim that God is love. Nobody wants a God that's not love. 
But there's no way for that God to eternally be loved without being dependent on creatures to be who He is. And a God who is dependent on a creature to be loved... See, here's the point. If if you have a God that's love, and there's just a singularity there, He doesn't have an eternity past before there were any creatures, there wasn't anyone for Him to love. He can't be who He is without the creature. That makes him creaturely dependent. If God is creaturely dependent, then by definition, he's not a God. He's dependent on something. And a God, by definition, is independent. He is autonomous, completely. He is self-sustained all eternity. And so God's personal love has an eternal personal object in the three persons of the Trinity. And this summarizes all of whom God is, but goes beyond that. So you can't simply say God is sovereign, God is righteous, God is just, God is eternal life, God is omniscient. You can't just add all those up like you're making an equation, you know, A plus B plus C plus D equals X. X meaning love. See, love is, is a term that summarizes all of whom God is, but it is more than simply a sum of the parts. Love goes beyond all of those parts. But God is clearly stated to be love in John chapter 4 twice. In 1 John chapter 4, verse 8 and 16, we find the statement, God is love. So God Himself, His character, the way God relates to creatures, defines what love is. See, what happens is man wants to go out here in terms of his experience somewhere, define what love is, and then take that and impose that on God. That's going backwards. God is love. So we have to start with who and what God is and how God deals with, with the other persons of the Trinity and then how God deals with creatures in order to understand what love is. The second dimension of love is God's impersonal love. Impersonal love. Now that's a difficult concept, difficult term for some people because they think of impersonal as being like a machine. That's not what I'm saying. Impersonal means that there does not have to be a personal relationship in order for this love to function. It does not require a personal relationship. For example, John 3.16 says that God so loved the world. Now, God did not have a relationship with all those unbelievers in the world. And yet God loved them. That's why it's impersonal love. It's also unconditional love. Impersonal emphasizes the fact that a personal relationship and personal knowledge is not necessary to the function of the love. And condition, unconditional emphasizes the fact that it doesn't involve a condition. It's eternal. It's immutable. It never changes. God doesn't say, I'll love you if. He says, I love you, period. The greatest example of divine impersonal love is the cross. It was there that God sent His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, the eternal second person of the Trinity, to go to the cross and to die as a spiritual substitute for our sins. There He endured the most unimaginable suffering, torment, and punishment more than anything we could ever ever think of or ever experience. He did that in order to free us from our slavery to sin and so that we could have eternal life and spend eternity with Him in heaven. He did not do that because we were likable. He didn't do that because we were nice. He didn't look down the corridors of time and see you and say, oh, you're just such a wonderful person, I just have to have you in heaven with me. God looked down the corridors of time and saw every single human being and saw that they were obnoxious to Him, they were rebellious to Him, they hated Him, they were running from Him, they were antagonistic to Him, they were abhorrent to Him, and they were repulsive to God because they lacked righteousness. But God loved mankind not because of who and what we are, but because of His character, because of His righteousness and because of His justice, and because God is who He is, because He has absolute, perfect integrity and virtue. And that's what gives His love stability and strength. And that's the starting point. We must understand the character of God, who and what He is, and how that affects the character of His love. So his love is what motivated his action. Now, motive is not an emotional term. Motive means the reason, the motion, comes from the Latin word to move. It means the motion, what causes the motion. And people can be moved to do anything for all kinds of reasons. We can be moved emotionally 
And we can be moved on the basis of reason and logic. And God is moved on the basis of who and what He is, His justice and His righteousness, and His love, His desire to, to do the highest and best for His creatures. So His love motivated Him. For God so loved the world that He gave. It is that love which is the motive. So the fifth thing that we say about love is that it is His love, His personal love, His impersonal love, that is the pattern. It's the model. It's the archetype. It's the prototype. All those say the same thing. Of the new commandment. It is His love that we are to emulate in our lives. We are to love one another as Christ loves us. So the starting point is as Christ loved us. That's what we have to understand. John 13, 34 and 35, Jesus said, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. Now, God does not give us things that we can't do. He does not mandate impossibilities. This means, by the fact that Jesus said that we are to love one another as He loved us, that it's possible. But we can't do it on our own. We can't do it as from our sin nature. We can only do it because God also gives us the Holy Spirit who is the one who produces that love in us. Remember, Galatians 5, 21 and 22 says that the fruit of the Spirit is first love. It's the Holy Spirit that produces that in our lives. And it is a unique kind of love that cannot be manufactured on our own and can't be something that the unbeliever produces. That's why Jesus says in John 13, 35, By this, all men will know that you are my disciples, you are my students, you are the ones learning about me, is your love for one another. This is our greatest testimony, is how we treat one another. That we love one another. Now, divine impersonal love has its characteristics, but human impersonal love has the following characteristics. First of all, impersonal love is impossible because is impossible, but God doesn't mandate the impossible without providing the means of accomplishment. He provides the means of accomplishment. Secondly, impersonal love is the hallmark, the trademark of the believer. It is, more than anything else, our visible testimony and is a summation of the Christian way of life. Third, impersonal love is the basis for problem-solving in human relations. If you're in relationships, you're going to need impersonal love. There's always going to be problems with rejection. There's going to be problems with somebody irritating you, somebody making you mad, somebody disappointing you, somebody not doing what they should, somebody acting on the power of their sin nature. And the only way to handle that is through impersonal love. The unbeliever doesn't have that resource, so all they can do is either try to approve everything and say, well, it's really not that bad, or just go into some form of of denial that it really didn't happen, or else to react in anger, to react in bitterness, to react in jealousy, or to just exclude that person from their life altogether. That's the only options the unbeliever has. But the believer can solve problems and continue in a relationship and improve the relationship, no matter how difficult it might be, only by utilizing impersonal love. Remember, Jesus Christ operated on impersonal love and came to people who hated, despised, rejected Him, and nailed Him to the cross. He didn't say, okay, you've reached the point of no return now. I'm just going to get down off the cross. I'm tired of the rejection. I'm going home. Impersonal love allows us to overcome any degree of rejection and obnoxiousness. Fourth, impersonal love is the ability to accept all people as they are, warts and all. We don't have to say, well, you need to change, you need to do this, you need to do that. We can accept them as they are. It is both the absence of mental attitude sins, the absence of prejudice, and the presence of genuine concern, regard, and solicitousness for even those who may be treating us the worst. It's not just the absence of sin. It's not just saying, okay, I'm not going to react, I'm not going to be angry, I'm not going to be bitter or jealous. It is the presence of doing something for that person that is positive, that's beneficial, that's in their best regard, that may even cost us something and that may even entail sacrifice on our own part in making ourselves vulnerable. Fifth, impersonal love will have no stability or strength 
without grace orientation and doctrinal orientation. That's why those two elements are foundational. If you don't understand the grace of God, which is exemplified at the cross, that God dealt with us not on the basis of who we are and what we've done, but on the basis of who He is and what Christ did on the cross, then we can't get to impersonal love. Grace orientation is the first step in understanding what love is. And so, there, so when you hear somebody say, I love you, if they don't understand grace, they're involved in some legalistic religion or no religion at all, then they'll never understand what it means to really, truly love and have unconditional love for you. And six, the sixth characteristic of impersonal love is that it develops the capacity for life, love, and happiness. Now, in the Old Testament, now when Jesus was speaking, he said, "A new commandment I give you." Well, it comes to mind. Wasn't there another commandment similar to that in the Old Testament? And there was. We find that in the Old Testament in a number of passages. But perhaps one of the best places to note it is in a passage in the New Testament. Turn first to Matthew chapter 22. Matthew chapter 22. Verse 34 and 35. Verse 34, But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, see, they were always competing with each other, they gathered together. Okay, well, the Sadducees could now wit him, so it's our chance. Verse 35, Then one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question, testing him. Notice, he is testing. He is not really trying to find solutions. He's testing him and saying, Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? Now, I want you to notice, this lawyer doesn't know what the great commandment is. He's asking the question. Now, this was a big discussion among rabbis at that time. Is What was the greatest of the of the commandments in the Mosaic Law. There are 615 commandments in the Mosaic Law and they were trying to decide which one was the greatest. Now, Jesus summarizes the law in verse 37. Jesus said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. That's a quote from Leviticus 19.18. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. All the Old Testament is an exposition of those two commands. Now, turn over a few pages to the next gospel, uh, two Gospels later, Luke. Luke chapter 10. Luke chapter 10. Similar situation, but there's some important differences, so I think it was a similar situation, not the exact same interchange. Luke 10, verse 25. Behold, a certain lawyer stood up and tested him, saying... Now, the same kind of situation. It's a lawyer testing him, but it's not in the context of the Pharisees and Sadducees. And this lawyer already knows the summation of the two great commandments. So this is probably after the Matthew 25 incident. Behold, a certain lawyer stood up and tested him, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? The other guy asked, what's the greatest commandment? This guy says, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, Jesus said to him, what is written in the law? What you're reading of it. So he answered and said, now this guy heard the other guy. He knows what the answer is. He said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor, and your neighbor as yourself. So Jesus said to him, you have answered rightly. Do this, and you will live. But he, wanting to justify himself, see the motive is not to learn anything. It's self-justification. The lawyer is operating on arrogance. He, wanting to justify himself, said to Jesus, Well, who's my neighbor? He's trying to pin Jesus. He's really asking questions. He wants to see, try to find some flaw in Jesus' thinking or his argument. So he says, Who is my neighbor? Jesus answered and said, A certain man... Go and give a parable to answer the, the question. A certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho, fell among thieves who stripped him of his clothing, wounded him, and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a certain priest came down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So the priest comes along, sees the guy by the side of the road who's been stripped, beaten up, mugged, ignores him. Likewise, a Levite, when he arrived at the place, came and looked, curiosity, always like the people going by on the accidents on the highway, you know, they always have to slow down and 
see if they can find, see any blood. But they don't stop in hell. So he, he passed by on the other side. But a certain Samaritan, now remember Jews hated Samaritans. They were half-breeds. They were on the bottom of the food chain. They were the most, uh, uh, the Jews were very bigoted and prejudiced towards the Samaritans and hated them. So along comes a Samaritan who has no cause to have any positive regard for a Jew at all. A certain Samaritan, as he journeyed, came where he was, saw this man by the side of the road. When he saw him, he had compassion. So he went to him. Now see, this is impersonal love. It shows compassion. He's doing something positive for this person. He doesn't know him. He doesn't have a clue who he is. In fact, he represents a group of people who hate him. But he's going to do something positive and beneficial for him. He had compassion. So he went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine, and he set him on his own animal, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. So he takes him down to the local hotel, rents a room for him. It costs him something. And he does this not on the basis of who and what the victim is, but because of what's in his own soul. So he went to him, bandaged his wounds, and then verse 35, on the next day, when he departed... He took out two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper, and said to him, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, when I come again, I will repay you. So it costs him something. He pays for the man's stay, he pays for his food, and he gives money for his future sustenance and care. So then Jesus asked the question, So which of these three do you think was a neighbor to him who fell among the thieves? And the lawyer said, He who showed mercy on him. And Jesus said, Go and do likewise. So there we see a a parable that illustrates what impersonal love is. It is not simply the absence of mental attitude sins, but is the presence of something positive, beneficial, doing something good that may even cost us something in the process. Now, I want you to notice something. There's a command in Leviticus 19.18 is the reference here. And it's the Old Testament command to love your neighbor as yourself. That's the Old Testament version. But there's a higher New Testament version, which is John 13.34-35. I want you to note, let's do a comparison and contrast of these commands. Leviticus 19.18 was addressed to Israel. Believer and unbeliever are both expected to fulfill this mandate. But John 13, to love one another, is addressed to the church only, believer only, to love not everyone, but to love one another. That is, it's directed primarily toward believers. Second observation, the command in both instances is to love. Third observation, Leviticus 19.18 is to love your neighbor, that is, anyone in your periphery. Whereas John 13.34-35 is addressed to one another, to other believers, even those who are obnoxious. The point of comparison, Leviticus 19.18, is to love your neighbor as yourself. See, without the Holy Spirit, and without the example of Christ coming at the cross, the highest example of love is the fact that every person loves himself. Now, some people say that that's arrogance. Well, then you're contradicting the Word of God, because over in Ephesians chapter 5, When Paul is blasting husbands on how they love their wives, he ends up saying, well, for no man hates his own flesh, but cherishes it and honors it. It's a general principle. Everybody takes care of themselves. Everybody puts themselves first. And what this is saying is don't just put yourself first, put somebody else first. And that's the best you could do in the Old Testament without the indwelling and filling of God the Holy Spirit and without the model of Jesus Christ. But they failed. They couldn't even do that. In the New Testament, there's an even higher standard. We're to love one another as Christ has loved us. That's impossible. It was possible in the Old Testament for even unbelievers to fulfill Leviticus 19.18, but few did. But in the New Testament, the model is stepped up and intensified. The example is Jesus Christ. None of us can do that. It can only come through a supernatural empowerment on the basis of God, the Holy Spirit. So that is why loving one another as impersonal love is crucial to the spiritual life and indicates the advance in spiritual maturity. Now, so far, all we've been able to do is cover the first two points in the doctrine of impersonal love. Definition, 
and one illustration from Scripture on the parable of the Good Samaritan. Next time, we're going to come back and we're going to look at those in a little more detail and begin to flesh out the characteristics. I've got eight characteristics of God's love displayed at the cross that are necessary to have any kind of real, significant, virtuous love. And we'll cover that next Sunday morning with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we do thank You for this time together. We thank You for the love that You have demonstrated to us at the cross. There, Jesus Christ paid the penalty for each and every sin in human history. He died as our spiritual substitute. And that salvation, therefore, is not based on what we do. It's not based on who we are. It's based on who Jesus Christ is and what He did on the cross. Therefore, salvation is not a result of works, but it's a result of faith. Faith alone in Christ alone. Scripture says, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. If there's anyone here this morning without faith, without hope, without a certainty of your salvation, now is your opportunity right where you sit to make your eternal destiny certain. All you have to do is put your faith alone in Christ alone. Jesus, God the Father knows what you are believing, what you are trusting in for eternal salvation. Once you put your faith alone in Christ alone, you have eternal salvation. You can never lose it and it will never be taken away from you. And then the challenge is to live the spiritual life. Father, we pray that those who are believers here will take up the challenge to advance to spiritual maturity that they might glorify you in their lives here on earth today and in heaven in the future. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.